Welcome to the Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And special guest star this week, episode 75. Hello, I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Beacon. And this is The Film File, your favourite film show. Yes, if you're a film geek, then you want to listen to other film geeks. Almost sounded like one of those ads that used to have for naughty ladies on used to be on Channel 4 and Channel 5 <laughs> late at night. Do you want to meet other film geeks? Then listen to this podcast. Call 0866 <laughs> Geek. <laughs> geek on geek action all night. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to grown men talk about their favourite films. I mean, there could be a we market. We could, we could make could a phone be. line and see if we can make a market for this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm I'm good. Um, this weekend we celebrated the third anniversary of me starting the movie talk on Sundays over on Twitter, and ah, it was a great turnout. Too. I'm glad to hear you. What did you cover? We did the topic of musicals in like musicals and music used within films. And it had a fantastic reception. There was some of the old faces who hadn't taken part for a while jumped on because, like, A, the third anniversary, and also, B, musicals is a very popular thing, despite the fact that the box office tells you other things. But that's a different story altogether. And it was great. It was a I great think we covered chat. that last week. We did, yes. Uh, it's reinvigorated, like, my whole passion for MTOS, um, which is what we call Movie Talk on Sunday. Hashtag MTOS for all those out there who are on Twitter and want to take part in the... Um, Sunday evening chats. It's a great way to round off the weekend. Different topics each week. Ten questions, all about opinions on things. No judgments. We never mock you unless you say Paul Blart Moore Cop's a good film. Uh, but overall, a great way to celebrate it. Uh, I didn't have to even have to come up with the questions because one of the regular contribu contributors, uh, Dennis Obi, he is a machine for churning out topics. He just sends me topic after topic after topic. A few weeks ago, he just said, I've got a few ready for you. I was like, oh, send them over. 12 topics later, I'm like, well, that's me sorted for three months. Great. <laughs> uh, but I, I love it when other people contribute because it gives me a chance to actually answer without actually thinking about the answer while I'm writing the questions. So it, it, I get to play along. Uh, great. I, I love it. I, it. It's part of my passion of film. And our, pa our whole passions of film, both me and you, we're going to be exploring on someone else's podcast in a couple of weeks. We are, and I'm quite looking forward to it. Well, my weekend was, I, I went away, which was which was unusual because just to get out of the city um, was was mm. uh, reinvigorating. Went down to Sherwood Forest, had a lovely weekend. Also, I want to mention that I rewatched Army of the Dead. Now, we talked about and reviewed Army of the Dead a good few weeks ago now when the film opened on Netflix. Uh, and you and I got into a kind of a little brief discussion about films that you see a second time. Sometimes they hold up. Sometimes on, on the second viewing, they suppress the original viewing. And then other times you come back and you think, ah, I was very ah about uh, ah. Army of the Dead the second time. Uh, and for, for reasons that I think, well, this time I watched it with my partner. Uh, who actually did thoroughly enjoy it. But between us, we started to notice huge jumps in logic that I kind of maybe... I, I hadn't noticed the first time, not that they weren't apparent because they are huge uh, plot holes in it, but I think I got caught up in the spectacle and the humour and and everything else. And and this, uh, for me, is, is Zack Snyder. At, uh, and I think this is one of his skills. He, he, he dazzles you with, with interesting and great visuals. And then that knocks you off kilter so you don't think too hard about the story or the appalling dialogue. And I got caught up in things that I really liked, like the men on a mission, you know, robbing a casino, that kind of thing uh, played out with a zombie, um, a zombie background. And there's still a lot I enjoyed about it, but I found myself getting very annoyed. I, and I'm not going to go into it because we could we could spend an entire show on it. But one thing that really <laughs> jumped out to me, apart from, of course, it is a, a loose remake of Aliens, is why did they get hired to rob a vault? when the basic mission was to go and get the uh, zombie queen's head. Why didn't they hire some big game hunters to go in and and, and just hunt down <laughs> zombies? 
but they they had this facade of going into the vault. I don't get it. Didn't understand, and and that really threw the once that that scene came up, really threw me out of the rest of the film. And um, it's like an attempt to throw a, a a clever plot twist in that doesn't fit with the actual plot. Yeah, I mean it's not clever. It's not big, or is it? Is it clever because it doesn't make any sense, and, it, <laughs> and it's it's the backbone of of uh, of the movie. Um, if they'd gone in to get something from the vault that wasn't money, would have made perfect sense. But it just yeah. is just such a such a weak aspect. You could say, you could argue that they took these guys because there's no way they would have got into it. But then why didn't you get some big game hunters to come in, which would have been an entirely different movie? Yeah. It, it just threw me and and it made me think about films that you see for a second time where sometimes some films just don't hold up and sometimes sometimes you get yeah. a better appreciation of it. Maybe it's a subject for a later show. Yeah, I mean, I think we could do a whole show on revisiting films that we've either loved or hated a second time round and like comparing them. So we'll, we'll get some ideas on that one. And if anyone's got any ideas of films that you think might fit this bill, you know what to do. Get in touch. As simple as that. On this week's show, we are reviewing Luca, the new Pixar animated film that appeared this weekend free, interestingly enough, on Disney+. Plus. Andy will also be talking about... My main review will be In the Heights, which I, I gave a tease last week of what I thought about it. I've also got quick reviews of In the Earth and <laughs> something which I think will definitely fit the bill of what we've just been talking about. Paul W.S. Anderson's Monster Hunter. More on that later. More on that later. But coming up also on the show, we will be doing a deep dive into Assault on Precinct 13, the John Carpenter classic. We'll be reviewing the second episode of Loki. But before all of that, we will be bringing you a segment which is highly anticipated by most. In fact, people now call Andy the private dick. Whether that's because of his investigational <laughs> skills, we don't know. But he puts them to good use in this sequence that we know only as the news. So, Andy, what have you got for us with the news this week? So, you'll remember a few years back, Spielberg made a point about how he didn't feel movies releasing on streaming should be allowed to be nominated for awards season. Yes, it was very controversial at the time. Yeah, it was spun into a narrative that Spielberg hated Netflix. Well, the shock news for those who fell into the media manipulation trap is that Spielberg's Amblin have now signed a deal with Netflix. It was bound to happen at some point, let's be honest. Well, Netflix are signing deals left, right and centre with different studios and companies at the moment. Uh, and if you remember, Amblin worked with Netflix on Trial of the Chicago 7 recently. Their new deal, as Spielberg himself says, is a new avenue for our films. Alongside the stories we continue to tell with our longtime family at Universal and our other partners, will be incredibly fulfilling for me personally since we get to embark on it together. Now, the deal allows Amblin complete creative control as is the norm with all the Netflix deals, with no restriction to budget or genre. And it still allows for the aforementioned deal that Amblin already have set up for big screen outings with Universal and other distributors. So it doesn't step on the toes of like West Side Story is not going straight to Netflix. None of like the current films in production will be going. And it will basically give Amblin the opportunity of deciding which of its films are for the big screen and which of its films are for the small screen, choosing the studio to work with on it. It is strange that Spielberg's so um, now happily to work with Netflix. It'll be interesting to see if one of Amblin's productions in the future, which goes to Netflix, gets put forward for an Oscar, because uh, I, I don't know how Spielberg himself is going to cope with that. <laughs> Interestingly enough, though, if you think about it, when Spielberg made those comments, the the output from, from Netflix wasn't quite as unique as it is now. I mean, you have... the, the, the Netflix has grown as, a, as an industry. Uh, yeah. And the work that they're producing is becoming, you know, as good, if not better. You know, this was prior to Scorsese and uh, The Irishman, for instance. So it, it's it's really developed and grown. And, and, their, and their material, like a marriage story, has become stronger and, and therefore become more Oscar worthy. So they have become a studio, which before they were just a conduit, weren't they, for, for showing other people's films. So. I can see where the where the thinking has changed quite a lot in the in the last few years. Although when Spielberg did say those comments, he did say it after Roma had just won 
awards yeah, of course, yeah. at the Oscars. So, it, I mean, because that's where all the hoo-ha came from, because people basically saw it as he was dismissing Roma as being Oscar-worthy, even though it clearly was, because it was a beautiful film. But it's it's obvious that over the past few years, because he's been talking with Netflix, he's been talking with streamers, and he, he's helped work with the, the Academy themselves to work out how a streaming film needs to be subjected and what the strict measures are. And I do think that this past year, where nothing got a cinema release, might have changed a good few minds within the circuit to see that streaming was the only viable option for films that were made with exactly the same passion as if they were going to the big screen. So last year was a game changer for the industry where everybody had to rethink how they were going to distribute output. You know, we're still not out of that situation yet. Uh, and, and, and that will give Netflix, Amazon and other creative streaming services an opportunity to prove their worth and, and prove that they are a studio in their own right. Yeah. Moving on to remakes and Disney's live action adaptations are churning out more and more and the live action adaptation of Snow White has now scored its lead lead actress in the form of Rachel Zegler who is going to be seen this December in Spielberg's West Side Story. Uh, Mark Webb who gave us 500 Days of Summer and Amazing Spider-Man is directing the new take on the fairy tale with shooting set for 2022. And the new film is going to not just adapt the old animation to the screen, but it's going to expand it out and add more musical elements uh, with new music being penned by La La Land and Greater Showman duo Benj Pasek and Justin Paul. I'm torn over these Disney live action remakes. I'm torn because sometimes they kind of work, but sometimes they just seem lazy. Do we want another Snow White? Haven't we had live action Snow Whites from other studios in the past 10 years? Maybe that's the thing, is we have had other interpretations of Snow White. Uh, there was a great Sigourney Weaver Snow White movie, which veered into quite horror elements. But we've not had anything like Disney Snow White. I mean, Mark Webb is a good director. You can forgive him for uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2, but Amazing Spider-Man, I like, and mm-hmm. 500 Days of Summer is a fantastic film. And he brings a lot of energy to the screen good cast and great songwriters to bring to it you know i mean all these are down to to several reasons one is purely to do financial uh, but also the fact that they're in copyright and a lot of these films are on the verge of uh, um you know becoming into the public domain in the u.s yeah so if disney can remake their own work they hold on to that yeah i'm hoping that this will feel akin to when they remade Beauty and the Beast as a live action, which I think worked because they expanded with that and added a few extra numbers in. And this is a chance for them to do the same with Snow White. Um, yeah, I mean, I loved I loved Pete's Dragon. I thought Pete's Dragon was a unique take on a not-so-great yeah. uh, Disney film. Um, on the opposite side of that, Mulan was, was really, really poor. It's what they want to invest. A Jungle Book I enjoyed. So sometimes they get it right, sometimes they, they hit it. And sometimes it's, it's a complete miss. Anyway, what else do you have for us? Yeah. So everybody saw it coming, but nobody is sure it's necessary. Yes, a sequel to Nobody is in the pipeline. Director Ilya Naishula has said that work has begun on a script for the sequel to the first film. Um, as the director said, there's plenty of stories that can be told in this world with the character Hutch. I know that Derek Kolstad, the writer, has begun work on the sequel. Whether it'll happen, time will tell, but all the necessary seeds have been planted. One thing Naishula has hinted is that Connie Nelson's character who plays Hutch's wife will get in on the action next time, which is kind of hinted at with her query whether the new home has a basement at the end of the first film. Maybe the sequel can focus on the rekindling of the marriage through ultraviolence. I don't know. But whilst I'm not averse to a sequel, if an idea can be spun off to make it worthwhile, I'm all for it. And I'm actually quite fond of Odenkirk in the role. I can't at this point in time see necessary reason for it to exist. Okay, so my take on this is, if you listen to last week's show, uh, either the podcast or if you're listening on the radio on on the Listen Again on the app, then you know how much we loved Nobody. A little bit like you, always cautious when um, a sequel is announced to a film that was perfect in the first place. However, look what's happened with John Wick and where that's gone and how they built this mythos up from what was essentially a, a revenge shoot him up if they yeah. can explore the world of Odenkirk's character then I'm I'm in and, and just the returning of all the key players and not just the, the cast but behind the scenes as well I think there are more stories to be told 
I'm cautious that it will take away some of the magic of the first film. But, you know, the thing about John Wick, and I've got to keep coming back to it, is it just improved and it proved and it built on the mythos and built on the whole world building. Uh, moving on to biopics, the Marvin Gaye biopic, What's Going On, has been picked up by Warner Brothers Pictures. Alan Hughes, who gave us From Hell and Book of Eli, is set to direct the film, which will eschew the traditional biopic approach by instead weaving Gay's past with events surrounding his final tour. The story will focus on his relationship with his father, who fatally shot him on the eve of his 45th birthday, and will address the demons that haunted him throughout his life, as well as the women who inspired his most iconic songs. Filming starts next year for a 2023 release. I do like a good biopic. They can go terribly wrong or feel very formulaic, but this sounds like an interesting approach that they're going to take to this one. And I'm, I'm quite intrigued to see what happens with it. I, I agree. I, this has been in the works for some time. There's been many, many occasions where a Marvin Gaye biopic has been announced. This sounds as though it's got some, some kudos behind it. I like the approach. I think the Hudlum brothers were very underrated directors. I know it's only just one of the, the brothers on this one. But I thought they were they were strong directors. Uh, From Hell kind of put them back at one time. They were connected to Black Panther, of all things. So I'm interested. A huge music fan, as you know, and a huge Marvin Gaye fan. So so count me in. Um, and I'd be interested to see who the casting is going to go with. Sticking with biopics, Doug Lyman's Everest has bagged a few names to the cast. The film is a biopic about George Mallory's attempts to summit the mountain back in the earlier 20th century. In 1921, just after the war, Mallory was tasked with the challenge to scale Everest and went up against his Australian rival, George Finch. Mallory participated in three failed expeditions with his final one in 1924, seeing him vanish, his body then recovered in 1999. Uh, Legends have theorised that Mallory actually made the summit and died on his way down, but he never got the credit for this. Uh, Ewan McGregor has been cast to play Mallory and Sam Hewan, who's currently in Outlander, will play Finch. And Mark Strong will play the astronomer and member of the Royal Geographic Society, Arthur Hinks. So I've got a I've got a story for you. As we talked about Alien the other week, what we really didn't mention much of was was Walter Hill. Anyway, Walter Hill, fantastic uh, uh, action director, been very very quiet over the last few years. But well, this this is news that I'm excited for. Willem Dafoe and Christopher Waltz in a Walter Hill western. I mean, that's 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 me signed up right there. Yeah, even though. Uh, Walter Hill's last movie uh, he did with Sylvester Stallone, The Name Escapes Me, was was very disappointing. I'm always up for a piece of Walter Hill ultraviolence because no one does it better than Walter Hill. Yeah, and I read up on this one, and Waltz in this one is going to play a bounty hunter named Borland who's hired to find and return a businessman's wife who was kidnapped by an African-American army deserter. While searching, he encounters his old adversary, William Defoe's Joe Cribbins, who he sent to prison years earlier. And also, it appears that the wife's disappearance wasn't actually a kidnapping. She was fleeing from her abusive husband. So, Walter Hill, ultra-violence in a Western setting. I'm in. Can't wait. I'm there on day one. Probably with you. <laughs> um, another film that I'm excited for, um, Ari Aster, who gave us Hereditary and Midsummer, is prepping Disappointment Boulevard for A24. The story, all we know so far, is described as an intimate decade-spanning portrait of one of the most successful entrepreneurs of all time, who will be played by Joaquin Phoenix. We know nothing else, but I'm a big fan of Hereditary and Midsummer. I think that the atmosphere that those two films project is my kind of horror. It's the chilling psychological trauma kind of horror. Uh, Broadway legends Nathan Lane and Patti Lupon have now also joined the cast, so I'm intrigued, really intrigued, but just having the name Ariasta involved in a film, that makes me excited. Uh, I'm talking of Wiki and Phoenix. He's going to be joining Rooney Mara in the cast for Lynn Ramsey's new film by the title of Polaris. Nothing else is revealed other than the title, but Lynn Ramsey is one of those directors that always brings something unusual to all of her, her filmmaking, and she's a, a real, real artist. Sticking with casting and production, and Jennifer Lopez is set to star and produce Netflix sci-fi thriller Atlas, with Brad Payton, who gave us Rampage, directing. She plays Atlas, a woman fighting for humanity in a future where an AI soldier has determined that the only way to end war is to end humanity. <coughs> Terminator. <coughs> 
Age of Ultron. <laughs> yep. To beat this AI, Atlas must work with another AI in this post-apocalyptical world. There, I managed to fit the word apocalyptical in again. I'm doing this every week. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. This is something that we touched on a few weeks ago when we said that Netflix seems to be cornering the market in sci-fi adventure when it comes to their films. They they really have got this little niche area that you can guarantee that they're going to be churning out sci-fi after sci-fi. And they're giving a lot of creative visionaries a chance to like da- tackle stories that maybe the big studios might have gone, eh, it's a bit too formulaic, not interested. Interested. I'm interested. As bad as Rampage is definitely one of the films that we mentioned earlier that when I watched it, I absolutely loved it. But the second time round, it was awful. Oh, funny for me. First time round, I watched it was awful. (laughs) But if he can deliver just an entertainment diversion, which I could watch once and just like for when I watched it, I'm more than happy. Uh, DC Films. So this week has seen some costume reveals this week. First of all, set photos leaked from Andy Machete's The Flash which will see Ezra Miller's character meddling with time, which leads to alternate timelines. Some snaps from the set have showcased Michael Keaton of Bruce Wayne. He's got the same hairstyle as the 89 Batman, albeit he's now greyed out. And also Sasha Cal as Supergirl in costume without the cape. The design of the Supergirl costume has gone down quite well with fans of comic books, with it looking very similar to the Lara Lane Kent version of the character from the Injustice comic books storyline. I, I saw the, um, I've seen all the stills, very excited for... Michael Keaton returning as Bruce Wayne and hopefully Batman. A little bit less yeah. impressed with the Supergirl costume. Not that I think you should go the traditional miniskirt route. I just found it a little bit less than super. But I am interested a lot in this film. Also, did you see the photos from the new Shazam movie? Yes. This was clearly done in response to the leaked shots from the Flash set that David Sandberg posted out an official group shot of the new Shazam costumes with the comment, before these come out anyway, let's make this official. I love the, I love the new designs for the costumes. Uh, the, the costumes in the first film were very childish. They were very like padded and fake and artificial and looks quite, kind of cartoony. But this, they look more mature, which kind of makes sense because the kids are growing older. And so they're going to be representing heroes in a more serious kind of manner. The costumes in the group shot generally look good. But the one that stood out the most for me was uh, Murray's costume, which in the first film, she was like the really, it looked like a five-year-old's costume, even though the character of Murray is the older character in, in the group of kids. It made no sense for her to have such a childish looking costume, whereas now she looks a lot more like a traditional superhero kind of outfit. I'm, I'm excited for this. There's also been leaked shots of Helen Mirren as Hespera, which is exactly what David Sandberg was saying because they were due to go out and start shooting out in public. People are going to get the cameras out and that's when it all gets leaked out. So I'm glad that they've controlled the narrative themselves by leaking a proper shot because the Supergirl costume, you say that you weren't that impressed with, but you've seen it from a leaked paparazzi shot. You've not seen it from correct lighting with the cape added, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm looking forward to seeing some official shots of Supergirl. Uh, Meanwhile, or should I say Elseworlds in DC, Robert Patterson and Colin Farrell are off to Glasgow next month for reshoots and pickups for the Batman. The two actors play Batman and the Penguin are the only names who are currently expected to be back for the reshoots in July, and the film is still on track for March 2022. So it's an exciting time if you're a fan of comic books and DC. As ever. I'm just going to go back over to the Mary Marvel thing. Now, I looked at that photo. It's, it's on this occasion, is the actress who played Mary now the same actress playing Mary Marvel as well? Yes, that appears to be the case. That um, She no longer has a different adult form, which kind of makes sense because her character will be an adult form in this film anyway. Yeah, and that was probably one of my only complaints as minor as they were with the, with the first film. So I'm glad they've rectified yeah. that. I, I had a blast with, with Shazam, and I'm hoping to have a blast with this follow-up. Yeah, it, 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 it was a step in the, the fun direction for DC, and I can't wait to see what they do with the second one. Um, a film that I get a lot of stick for enjoying, not a lot of people really took to it as much as I did, was Scoob. That's true. You did have a lot of stick for it, and you were the only one I know <laughs> who enjoyed it. it. It was less of a Scooby-Doo movie and more of a Hanna-Barbera expanded universe movie. Well, a follow-up of sorts to the film is in development. Tony Savoni has said, we're kicking the tyres on a follow-up to Scoob. It hasn't been announced yet, but it's something we're all excited about. The whole creative team that made the first movie is still around and back and working on something new. 
It was neat to create this Hanna-Barbera cinematic universe, and it's exciting to return to it, which sounds exactly like what I wanted. I enjoyed the Scoob film for its expansion into the Hanna-Barberian pantheon, and I can't wait to see more Captain Caveman on screen. I, I want them to explore. I want them to move away from it being Scoob. Don't call it Scoob. That's the only flaw that that film had. Is it they sold it on the idea of it being a Scooby Doo movie, and that's what disappointed people. If it hadn't have been sold on that, I think people might have embraced it a lot more than what they did. Hey, and, and we are certainly that podcast which doesn't tear down one film to build up another. You know, we aren't those guys. I mean, you enjoyed it. That's all that matters. Yeah, I could have got a rant there, but I, but I I avoided it. I walked away from ranting. <laughs> <laughs> You're a better man than I am. Uh, reboot time. In a I didn't see that one coming moment of news, the 1972 black exploitation horror classic Blackula is getting a new update from MGM. I know, and I saw this, and I thought we've got to talk about this on the show because you know what? Initially, how silly it sounded as an idea. The more I considered it, the more I suddenly realised how much wealth and potential there is to do a reboot of Blackula in today's society. Yep. It's, it just, it's, it, it should have been done a couple of years ago, but it absolutely ticks so many interesting boxes. For those who didn't see Blackula the first time, well worth checking out, really of its age and part of that fantastic run of black exploitation movies. In fact, just a fantastic exploitation movie period period. Yeah, uh, the story sees an African prince who's cursed by Dracula after he fails to agree to end the slave trade in the past. Blackula is entombed and awakens in modern day, ready to avenge the death of his ancestors and tackle those who stole the culture, heritage and works of his people. So it, it this is what you say about like it could work in this society. In this society where there's still injustice, they could play into that immensely. The new film will also play into the post-coronavirus landscape that we live in. And it'll be set in a post-coronavirus city. When I, when I said, like, I didn't see that coming, I clearly didn't. But same as you, as I read up on it, I was like, actually, I could quite see this. And I could yeah. see it really finding a target audience in this day and age. Yeah, a really, a really good choice. Not an obvious choice, but a good choice. Uh, Hiroyuki Sanada, recently spied in Mortal Kombat and Army of the Dead, has joined the ever-expanding cast of John Wick 4. He will reportedly be playing a character named Watanabe, how Ken Watanabe actually feels about being overlooked for this one is unknown, whose relationship with Wick is apparently the real heart and soul of the story, according to Lawrence Fishburne. Interesting. We don't know much about John Wick 4. All that we know is that the lineup of cast is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but we don't know what direction the story's going in. The cast of John Wick seems to be growing as much as the cast of Knives Out. In fact, that should be Knives Out 3, John Wick 5. <laughs> Does that mean that John Wick goes through to the semi-finals? <laughs> you can tell what kind of show this is when at no point we have mentioned football. We are the escape from football. Uh, Brian Cranston and Annette Benning will star in comedy Jerry and Marge Go Large, which is based on the true story of retiree Jerry Selby, who discovered a mathematical loophole in the Massachusetts lottery and with his wife won $27 million, using the money to revive their small Michigan town. David Frankel, who gave us Devil Wears Prada, is directing and filming begins next month. And it plans to be a Paramount Plus service TV release in the US. So what it's going to get internationally is still unknown. Anything else for us before we move on? And the final wrapping up the news this week. Martin McDonagh's critically acclaimed and well received by the public in Bruges saw Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson joining Ray Fiennes on excellent form in a wonderfully poignant and dark comedy. Whilst Madonna's second outing, Seven Psychopaths, wasn't as well received, his most recent three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, was and scored a pair of Oscars. For his fourth film, can you believe he's only done four films in all this time? He's one of, he's one of those directors, though, clearly takes his time to find the right project. I, I agree with you, by the way, before you move on into um, Seven Psychopaths. It wasn't a bad film. It yep. just didn't know what it wanted to do. And I think... It had the expectation of being an imbruised follow-up for a star. Uh, for his fourth film, he's going back to the stars of his first film with Colin Farrell and Gleeson once again reuniting for The Banshees of Inisherin, which starts shooting this August. The pair will play long-time friends who live on a remote Irish island but see tensions mount between themselves when one of them decides he no longer wants to be friends. Expect acidic insults and very, very memorable and fruity dialogue throughout. And that is... The news.
If you're enjoying the show, you may be also interested that you can hear this show as a radio show on No Barriers Radio. We go out at Thursdays. At what time do we go out, Andy? Eight o'clock. Eight till nine o'clock. It's an edited version of this show, but why don't you give it a listen? That's No Barriers Radio. And if you are enjoying the show, then there's a whole series of shows you might have missed. All you have to do is go to your favorite podcast streaming service, find the film file, hit the subscribe button, and you can spend longer on all the film file episodes than Zack Snyder's Justice League Director's Cut. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us over on Twitter at Filmfile UK, on Instagram, Filmfile UK, or you can email us with any thoughts, suggestions, films that you think that we should check out, differences of opinions on films that we've reviewed, podcast at filmfile.com. UK. Coming up in the rest of the programme, we'll be doing reviews and looking at Loki. But before, as you know, we do a deep dive into classic movies. My love for John Carpenter has been mentioned many, many times on this show. And any chance I get to introduce John Carpenter into one of our deep dives, then I'll always take the chance. And this chance I'll taking, and there is a clever, clever bit of trivia there, is John Carpenter's 1976 film, and his first proper motion picture after Dark Star, Assault on Precinct 13. On Saturday, six members of the gang known as Street Thunder were ambushed by the police. On Sunday, the warlords of Street Thunder swore a blood oath to avenge their dead. For the gang called Street Thunder, it is a day of vengeance. It's terror in the night. It's the most shattering assault on a police station in history. Assault on Precinct 13. This is the siege. It's a goddamn siege. So did you get the clever giveaway? Yes. John Carpenter, who directed, wrote, scored, and edited this under the pseudonym John T. Chance, brought us this fantastic lo-fi thriller that still holds up to today. John Carpenter was approached after his first film, Dark Star, to make a low-budget exploitation film for under $100,000 on the condition that Carpenter could have total control. Carpenter's original script, titled The Anderson Alamo, was inspired by the Howard Hawks western Rio Bravo and, and a film that we mentioned a few weeks ago, George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead. So in south-central LA, members of her gang are killed by an LAPD ambush and the rest of the gang, armed with weapons, swear revenge not only against the police, but also the public, going on a major cat crime spree. Amongst it, a young girl gets gunned down, and her father is hunted down by members of the gang. He takes refuge in a decommissioned police precinct, the skeleton staff there finalising the close down of the building. Also present at that station is a prison bus with a few prisoners who stopped off for medical assistance. As the gang num numbers outside the precinct begin to grow, the building, with scant resources, finds itself under siege. Why this film works, and it still works even 40 years on, is that it's just a pared-down, no-nonsense thriller that doesn't outstay its welcome. It does that clever thing that all first-time directors, are, I think, if you're going to work in genre, should do. Take one set, exactly like Romero did, and basically expand the idea to its breaking point and keeping it claustrophobic and keeping it, of course, thrilling. Sam Raimi did it. To some extent, I think Ridley Scott did it. But Carpenter did this wonderfully. He went back to Romero's Night of the Living Dead and saw what you can do with a confined space because confined space brings out tension. There are no stars in this film whatsoever. There's nobody who really went on to anything else, unlike Halloween, which he made after this. But everybody in this cast works perfectly. Austin Stoker, as Lieutenant Ethan Bishop, is charming and a great leader. But the scene stealer is Darwin Johnston as Napoleon Wilson, who is, to all intent and purpose, the bad guy normally in this. But he just is, he's just one of those characters who exudes cool. Yeah, Napoleon Wilson for me, it feels like the archetype that Snake Poliskin was modelled on. Yeah, I never thought of that, that's true. A criminal that you don't know his mysterious criminal past, you just know that he's notorious for lots of things, you don't know exactly what, and so you instantly think he must be a bad guy, he's got to turn against them, but he becomes an anti-hero he's charming, he's got integrity he's honest, and he cares for all the people under this peril in this location 
like I say, the echoes with Snake Plissken, who again has a mysterious past a few years later in another Carpenter film, are there. And it's as though Carpenter clearly got inspiration for the character Snake Plissken when he was making this film. I love all the mix of characters in this. I, I love the fact that Carpenter, for his second film outing, I mean, his first one, the comedy Dark Star, Absolutely got a lot of love for. It's hilarious, but it didn't feel very Carpenter-esque. This, he set out his stall from the offset. He's not afraid to tackle more taboo subject matters. And one taboo subject matter, particularly at that time, and even today, is the killing of a child on screen. Absolutely. Uh, that one scene uh, landed the entire film in hot water. The violent killing of a young girl. The film, therefore, received an R rating when it opened in the United States back on November the 5th. 1976 and it killed the film at the box office uh, it was met with uh, mixed reviews as i said uh, unimpressive box office returns but when the film premiered in the 1977 london film festival it received an ecstatic review by festival director ken weishan and that led to critical acclaim first in britain and then throughout europe and it garnered what is so essential for this kind of film which is a cult following and a reappraisal from critics which who many evaluate this film as one of the best action films of its area and of course carpenter's uh, career carpenter wears his uh, his film influences on his sleeve he a little bit like the tarantino of his day he's yeah. a bit of a of a film magpie and you can see that and he takes from Sergio Leone and he takes from Alfred Hitchcock and of course he takes from who is fundamentally his master which is Howard Hawks and he has made uh, a Howard Hawks style western as I said the big influence of this was uh, El Dorado and Rio Lobo and Rio Bravo as I said the pseudonym that Carpenter uses John T. Chance was a character uh, played by John Wayne in one of Howard Hawks's westerns it still sings by the fact that you don't see the assailants. They are just an outside conquering, relentless force is very similar to George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead. But that's what makes it work. That's what gives you the tension, because these guys aren't going to stop until everyone in this police station is dead. And it's the skill in Carpenter's writing and his direction that keeps you interested all the time because all the characters add something to the movie and makes it entirely watchable. Yes, there's a couple of uh, corny lines in there, but the, the ongoing joke of Napoleon Wilson constantly asking for, have you got a smoke, was inspired <laughs> by a cigarette gag used in many of the Holtz Westerns. This is a fantastic film. Ignore the remake. Go back and watch this film. Uh, and something we both got to add, is the stunning soundtrack. Yeah, I mean, it's something that Carpenter has become known for throughout his career of he does his own music scores. And, you know, he's, he's given he's given the world of film some of the most memorable music cues, the Halloween theme, etc. But for me, this film has the one that I can listen to over and over again more than any of the others. It might be because Bomb the Bass did um, a kind of Mega Blast remix version of it. Uh, and I was absolutely into Bomb the Bass in the late 80s. But the the whole beat echo of it, dun, 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 is just hypnotic. It draws you in and it also gives the presence of like oppression which is going on throughout the film. Uh, you said ignore the remake. I, the remake's okay, but it's not something yeah, that I, I ever intend to rewatch. I think what they did cleverly with the remake is they didn't just directly remake it. They give it another reason why the attack was taking place. And it, it played around through a few twists in there. It didn't stray too far from the design of the original, but it, it gave its own story and reason to exist. But it's not one that you're ever compelled to go back and revisit. And the remake had Ethan Hawke and Lawrence Fishburne, given, their, given a decent performances in it. But Carpenter's original. I rewatched this a couple of days ago. It's available on Amazon Prime at the moment. Well worth checking out. Ignore the fact that for some reason it says 2020 on um, the Amazon Prime release date for it. It's not 2020's version. It is the original version. Well worth checking out. Revisiting it was an absolute joy. It's been a couple of decades since I last checked it out. And it was one of them that I was worried about going back to. Would it stand the test of time? And yes, it does very much stand the test of time. One of Carpenter's finest films, straight out the gate. Marvellous, well worth checking out. Uh, I can only agree. It's uh, one of my all-time favourites. It's been a big influence on the script that I'm writing, uh, which is basically a horror version of 
uh, Assault on Precinct 13. Uh, I absolutely adore it. It's rich with everything that makes Carpenter the filmmaker that we've, we've come to love. Uh, and it's a clever caricature of, of the classic mm. Western, but it still has that rich, independent 70s film feel to it. And I'm, I'm a sucker for any 70s thriller. So hopefully, just like us, you've had a chance to get back into your local cinema. If you haven't, then you might be still checking out Disney+. And opening last week, controversially so it seems, was the new Pixar film. From Pixar, currently on Disney+, Luca. Wow, Luca. That was hard to watch. Come on. Streaming this June on Disney+. Plus. We do not go anywhere near the surface. Everything good is above the surface. The sky, clouds, the sun. Whoa, don't look at it. Just kidding. Definitely look at it. Disney and Pixar's Luca. Maybe PG. I guess that's how humans swim? Ugh, that's embarrassing. Streaming this June on Disney+. Plus. So controversial because... Uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago, is that um, the Disney animated film went to Disney Plus Premiere. However, this came out for free. I've got a couple of theories as to why that may be. But Andy, tell me your thoughts initially on Luca. Quick synopsis. Set on the Italian Riviera, this film sees Luca, a sea monster who's been raised to fear the land people, until he gets dragged, literally, to shore by another sea monster who spends time as an outcast, fascinated by human things. That other character's name, Alberto. The two young sea monsters form a close bonding and Luca flees his restrictive undersea family to explore the nearby harbour town as a human, risking discovery at every moment. The simple splash of water will reveal his true nature underneath. When the pair befriend a human girl called Julia, their friendship is strained and their lives are put into more peril as her father's a fierce fisherman and hunter of monsters. Initially, as I watched this, it felt very different to a normal Pixar film. It didn't have that hyper-real kind of animation style, even though the water effects are as marvellous as what Pixar have ever done since Finding Nemo onwards. There was something about the animation style that didn't feel very Pixar. And then within the first 10 minutes, I saw past that and I enjoyed the animation style that they brought to it because they are clearly going for what I can describe as a newspaper comic strip-esque approach to the design aesthetic of all the characters involved. This is a childlike kind of story, similar at times, to things like the Charlie Brown and Peanut strips, in that it's about children and how children bond and friendship that's formed through them. And as the film went on, I fell more and more in love with it. I got to the end of the film and I knew that I'd enjoyed it, but I didn't know exactly how much. But over the last few days since I watched it, I now want to re-watch it because it sat on me and the themes that it explores have resonated quite deeply within me that makes it one that I want to go back and revisit and think I will enjoy it more the second time around. Talking about the animation style, for me, because it's set in on an Italian island, it felt very European. It didn't feel like in a typical Pixar look, but it did feel, it made me reminisce to watching European animation that I remember as a kid. Uh, and, and that fed into the whole feel of it. I mean, interestingly enough, um, what, what we, we don't have in this is there's no big villain and there's no big quest that you would find in uh, in Onward or Finding Nemo, for instance. And it lacks something that you would normally find in, in a Pixar film. And to some extent, a lot of that a lot of that worked. As I went through it, initially, I was a bit disappointed because I, I, I love the Onward style quest. But as mm. I started to recognize what this was about, which is about being an outsider, about not quite fitting in, about having a different, slightly different worldview. I realized there was a lot more going on below the surface, pun clearly intended. Uh, and the fact that it's it's about um, two Italian motorized scooters driven by two young kids in sunbaked daydreams makes it feel very slight. And, and story-wise, it is. It's what's happening underneath. There's, there's an awful lot at work, and I think you can draw your own conclusions as to what that is. Is it about being, could be about being gay and coming out. It's about discovering who you really are. I think there's there's a lot of ways that you can interpret it, and I think that depends on your own your own personal experiences. I, I found it very, very charming. I found it very, very lovely. It's, is it classic Pixar? I, I don't think it is, and I go back to what I alluded to earlier that maybe instead of the film hitting the box office and 
receiving sort of lukewarm uh, uh, reviews that they decided to throw it in to to Disney Plus and and let it find its audience there as opposed to being a, a Disney flop and 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 it's not a flop in in any any stretch of the imagination it's charming it's cozy and there's a lot a lot to like about it yeah yeah i think the only problem that there is with it releasing free on Disney Plus is that it follows in the wake of soul an oscar winner getting released in the same way to Disney Plus and so it now looks as though Disney have a vendetta against Pixar for some reason. And I think that's a shame. I do think that it might have found an audience on the big screen. In this current environment where people are just wanting to go back to the cinema and lap things up, I think it's a shame that they didn't do a split release and allow people to choose whether they want to see it on the big screen. But I, I do get that because it feels so different to a normal Pixar film, they might have worried that it was a bit too different and a yeah. bit too niche almost. A great film. I, I definitely recommend it to everyone that I know, and I recommend it to all to check it out. There's a lot of discussion about it online. Uh, you commented on, you know, that the the being different and feeling an outsider, you can interpret in different ways. And some people that the LGBT community community have embraced this film because they see it as it signifies them finding themselves. Um, you can look at it as race issues. You can look at it at anything, that any moments that you feel that you're an outsider. When you're a child, other children would embrace you for who you were, and that's what you need to accept. And people around you as adults should accept everyone, regardless of what they are. I, I like you say, so many themes deep within this film, underneath a very simple story. Cracking film, well worth checking out. Totally agreed. Okay, Andy, uh, you've seen some films that I've not hit me. Hit me with Monster Hunter first, because I know you're a big Paul W. Anderson fan, and he can do no wrong for you. Has he done you no wrong this time? There's a world beyond your own. It was peaceful once, but no longer. <laughs> to kill a monster, you need a monster. We fight and we survive. Hey, ugly. Ah, got you. Monster Hunter. Let me tell you about Monster Hunter. Is this a good film? No. <laughs> By a long shot, it is far from a good film. Make no mistakes, if you don't have a soft spot for Paul W.S. Anderson's films, the guy who gave us, you know, the great Mortal Kombat, but also the not-so-great Resident Evil series of films, and so on. This film will not be for you if you've never found enjoyment in the dumb action that he throws on screen. It's loosely inspired by the video game series, very loosely. The film sees a military unit cross over dimensions to a world of monsters that threatens to invade our own. Most are swiftly dispatched, but Mila Jovovich's Captain Artemis learns to fight and embrace the monster hunter tech as she seeks to escape and close the portal that threatens our realm. It is utter nonsense from start to finish. Total nonsense. And just an excuse once again for Anderson to film his missus beating seven shades out of things. <laughs> this time, big monsters. But let's be honest here. It gave me exactly what I expected and exactly what I wanted. Big thrills, great action, dumb story. This was pure Anderson fun. And I've mentioned a few times on this podcast how I'm I'm a I'm a unashamed fan of Paul W.S. Anderson's films. I take my brain out, I leave it at the door, I go in and enjoy them. And if you can do the same, there's a lot to enjoy with the action on show here. Anderson is great at delivering action set pieces. If he could just hang a story together, he could be something much more. Critically, this is a one-star film, but in my heart, I had a blast, and I do intend to re-watch this, and so he gets three and a half out of me. Yes, three and a half stars for something that everyone else is hating on. There you have it. The only thing that, that kind of worries me about this film is that if you're a fan of the game, and from what you've said, it bears very little resemblance to the actual game. <laughs> Would it just not be a better idea not to call it Monster Hunter and call it something different? What do you think? Well, you know, one of these days he's just going to be honest and just call his films My Wife Beats Things Up. Yeah, and she's kind of earned it as well. She is she is kind of the leading female uh, action hero now, isn't she? Yeah, and yeah, as, mo as long as she keeps delivering some action spectacle on screen, I'm more than happy to sit and watch them. <laughs>
Other people, maybe not so much. Monster Hunter is on at cinemas if you desperately want to watch it. What else do you have? Now, In the Earth, Ben Wheatley's latest film was a film that he made during lockdown. He gathered a few people who he'd worked with in the past to come together to give us a pandemic-set psychological horror film, which was low-budget and more a chance for Wheatley to get back to his roots. The story is that a deadly pandemic has affected the world, and a scientist, Martin Lowry, played by Joel Fry, is sent to a government-secured outpost to assist in the studies and experiments of his former colleague and ex-lover, Olivia Wendell. He meets his park guide, Alma, and learns of the local legend of Palmer Fegg, a woodland spirit that's responsible for the unusually fertile forest that they're researching. Olivia has been missing for months, and as the pair seek her camp, they find themselves attacked by unknown assailants and soon encounter Zach, played by Reese Shearsmith, who most people will remember from The League of Gentlemen, who initially helps them, but he has nefarious reasons for doing so. And then things get weird. This is a very Ben Wheatley film, and it plays with the blurring of superstition, myth and science using psychedelic imagery to keep you, the audience, off kilter. There's very similar themes in here to A Field in England, and we have a folklore-based tale that has an occult horror feel, only this time the additional threat of the looming pandemic is everywhere. As with most Ben Wheatley films, particularly his earlier part of his career, the film has some comedic moments, however they are dark, and the film overall has a very British feel to it. The cast are engaging, Joel Fry and Eloria Torture in particular stand out and keep the tale grounded, even at moments when the surreality escalates. Shearsmith steals moments on screen, but never to the detriment of the drama on show. And his his off-kilter approach actually serves the film well. In the end, In the Earth is a film for fans of Wheatley's low-key style. After showcasing a very different approach in some recent films, this is more in tone with his earlier works. And if you're a fan of them, then there's a lot to like here too. In the Earth is showing at cinemas right now. Everything you've said that it is such a Ben Wheatley film is all the reasons that I'm reticent about watching it. I think he's a very talented filmmaker with a very, very in- individual voice. And I can see his, his uh, a bit like we talked about John Carpenter earlier, I can see his influences written all over him. And this looks like, you know, psychedelic sort of 70s uh, nature horror, which part of that I would really enjoy, the nature horror bit, but not necessarily, necessarily the sort of Ben Wheatley psychedelia that goes with it. But I'll probably wait until streaming for this one before I'll pay attention to it. So you saw In the Heights and you gave a really bad kind of spoiler for your review of it this week, last week. So <laughs> I'm guessing from what you said last week that you actually liked it as you were singing the tunes. Once upon a time, in a faraway land called Washington Heights, it's a story of a block that was disappearing. So it doesn't disappear. In the Heights. In the Heights, Lynn Manuel Miranda's musical stage production is brought to vivid life by John M. Chu. And the film opens with Anthony Ramos's character, Usnavi, telling a group of children the story of Washington Heights and the family and friends in the community there where he grew up, as events of a particularly hot summer play out. Usnavi finds out that his late father's business in the Dominican Republic is up for sale. He dreams of reviving the business and moving away. All around the Heights, everyone has their own dreams of escape or success, but struggle to find a way to make it. So when it is revealed that the local bodega sold a winning lottery ticket, Everyone gets excited at the thought that one of the community would finally make their own dreams come true. The story is packed with ambition, plights against corporations and romance, and all done to song. Now, I expected nothing from this film. I was nonchalant about the trailers. It looked okay, but it wasn't drawing me in. However, by the time the opening In the Heights song had played out, introducing all the key characters and locations in such a gloriously choreographed and spectacular manner, I was sold. From that point onwards, 
the 143 minutes runtime flew by. And by the end, I was tapping my feet and humming show tunes. Whilst the music style is very similar to Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda has a style and he isn't changing that for anyone. The presentation is what makes this stand out. Hamilton was just a filming of the stage show and I feel that it kind of lacked something because it was just a filming of the stage show. This is an adaptation that uses location and glorious cinematic conventions to turn big numbers into big showpieces. From swimming pool synchronic dancing to street level walkarounds, the film makes sure that every frame is glorious and Alice Brooks cinematography really does capture the heat of the summer and the bustle of the heights. It's got a great cast, some great voices, and it's a fun tale that buzzes by. In the Heights is a showcase musical extravaganza that is certain to please even the most cynical of music fans. Playing at your local cinemas right now, get down there and experience it on the biggest screen with the best sound that you can. Okay, I will try my hardest because I know uh, uh, Her Indoors really wants to see it, so I'll try my hardest to get to see that this week. And that's about it. But before we go, we will be talking about Loki. So if you've waited the entire program to see our take on Loki episode two, now is the time. So Andy, I said about episode one that I, while I did not enjoy it, I wasn't overwhelmed because I, I couldn't figure out where it was going. There was a lot to like about it, but I wasn't hugely impressed. Episode two comes along. And I'm hugely impressed because now <laughs> it's kind of found its feet. It's got a direction. And all the time, and I thought what was really smart about it is that Loki is still Loki. And at some stage, I thought he could become, I don't know, the MCU's Doctor Who. Going back in time, having an yeah. adventure, coming back again and learning something about himself. But what's clear about this is he's still Loki and he's still, he's still the god of mischief all the way through. And they've never lost sight of that. And of course, the uh, uh, the stunning ending of the reveal of, well, we don't quite know whom. Is it the Enchantress? Is it Lady Loki? But it was a great ending. Yeah, this second episode, I mean, when we spoke about the first episode last week, I said that at some point in this series, the timelines have got to fracture and multiverses have got to be created because it's going to be leading towards Doctor Strange, etc. And then episode two, what did they do? Yep. It's all about fracturing the timelines and setting up the multiverse. So uh, they've already answered my initial question of what they were going to go forwards with. And now it's like, okay, so are the episodes now going to be him fixing timeline threads or exploring down different avenues, seeing what if kind of ventures? I mean, maybe the what if animated series is spinning off from this as well. They have said that Loki is going to form the basis for pretty much everything MCU for this next few years. The Eternals, maybe they come out of hiding because the darkness that is rising again has come through through another multiverse. We Oh, there's so many things that I can tap into and I can get really fanboyish at this point in time. But like you said, the reveal of the female Loki at the end, yeah, I kind of thought maybe it's Enchantress or maybe one for the comic book fans only. Is this Sylvie? Um, oh yeah, yeah. And I, no one. That's a good point. Yeah, I forgot about that. Because this could play into because Asgard has been destroyed. Are they going to tap into the whole reconstruction of Asgard aspect that the comic books did, which led to the character of Sylvie, who was a character who was given powers as a joke, basically to mess with her, and she started to believe that she was a Loki kind of character. We don't know. I think there's a lot of mystery that they might explore, or they might just be pulling a load of red herrings out the bag, and it is just Lady Loki. We don't know at this point in time, but I am excited to stick around. I enjoyed the interactions that Loki had with all the humans that had been possessed by this other character. I loved that you got to see him. You got to see him, like you say, being Loki. He's still wants to manipulate. He's still out for himself. He's not the redeemed character that we had from the MCU. This is still a character who's doing things for himself. Yeah. And you, you still don't know whether he's going to actually be the hero of this story or whether at some point he might betray people. It's completely open at this point in time. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I can't wait. I mean, it's just annoying that by the time that this goes to air, we'll have yeah, already seen yeah, the next we... episode. And so we'll have the answers. But I'm excited for getting up every Wednesday. And the first thing I do before I do anything else is watch an episode of Loki. Excellent. Yep. And you can find Loki on Disney+. Plus. So what's coming up this next week on the cinemas? 
and on streaming. Well, at the cinemas, it's big action time as the Fast and Furious franchise hits the ninth film. Yes, Fast 9 lands this week. Cars, action, muscles, cars with muscles, (laughs) action with cars, action with muscles. You know the stuff by now. It's more of the same. It's fun. It's explosions. It's family. If you've not got on board with the Fast and Furious franchise, the ninth film is not the time to suddenly decide that you want to watch it. However, if you've already invested in this series, you know what to do. Get yourself to the box office this weekend. Uh, for people wanting something a bit little more low-key, Supernova sees Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth as a couple who take a road trip as one of them is starting to fall into the grip of dementia. I've got this on my radar to watch uh, due to the same reasons that I watch The Father and I expect it to actually destroy me in the same way that that film did. Um, I'll report back on this film next week. And Dog Tanyon and the Three Musker Hounds. Yes, the old animated series that seemed to go on forever every summer for people in the UK has got a new big screen outing. Is it too late for this old franchise that, let's be honest, the only age group that can remember it fully is my one. And I'm closing up to 50s pretty soon. Will kids embrace it? Is it just a straight-to-DVD film that shouldn't really go to the big screen. I don't know, but I don't care because I've already got the Three Musker Hounds song running through my head. All for one and one for all Musker Hounds are... Oh, I'll leave it there. If you want to stay at home and watch things on streaming this weekend, there's not a great deal of new stuff being offered. We do have Kindred over on Now TV and Sky, which sees a woman plagued by mysterious visions. Uh, The pregnant woman suspects that the family of her deceased boyfriend have intentions for her unborn child. Over on Amazon, the 2014 Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit, the latest in the film series for Jack Ryan, but saw Chris Pine inhabit the role this time. It's a pretty solid action flick, which makes for a nice engaging distraction. One film to avoid, which lands this week. And if your kids go to put this on, please protect them from themselves. The Emoji Movie lands on Amazon this weekend. That's pretty much the only things of note that have stood out for the streaming services this weekend. And that's it for this week. But before we go, and we do this every week, Andy and I will tell you about our neat thing. Something that we've watched, ate, read, played, you name it, as long as it's neat, we'll tell you about it. Andy, your neat thing for this week is... Now here's one that came as a surprise to me. Clarkson's Farm on Amazon. (laughs) I saw the trailer for it and I would never, ever. Are you sure you've not been replaced by an evil Loki? Because I would not have put you together with that show. Now, here's the strange thing. I mean, I do like Clarkson, May and Hammond. I love their run on Top Gear. I do love the Grand Tour. Despite the fact I have no interest in cars, I find their jaunts quite engaging. But I've not really embraced the separate spin-off shows, except for maybe James May's cookery one where he can't actually cook and he's trying to cook elaborate meals. I, I, I find him quite interesting and amusing. But Richard Hammond, I don't care. And Jerry Clarkson and anything else has always just irritated me. But I thought, you know what? I'll give it a shot. Let's see how it goes. No doubt it's going to be Jeremy Clarkson doing his usual bombastic over-the-top stuff and exploding things and oh, driving Lamborghinis and pulling donuts. And what it delivered instead was something completely unique. Jeremy Clarkson does own a farm. All of the land that he works on in this show, the many acres that he has, the many fields that he he plows are his. He used to have someone else run the farm for him, but that person's retired. So he's decided to try doing farming himself. And it it starts off, yes, he starts off as Jeremy Clarkson. He starts off, he gets himself a tractor. It's a Lamborghini tractor. Of course it is. It's too big. It's ridiculous. But over the episodes, it becomes more and more poignant and more an exploration of the farming community and the hardships that farmers actually see over a year's worth of production. You know, rain, whenever farmers have moaned about the weather. Now I understand exactly how much it means and how much they can lose if the rain comes at the wrong time. It's an absolutely engaging show that not only does it have Clarkson kind of taming himself down a bit and starting to be a bit more serious, but he has a great support team in the workers of the farm. There's Caleb, who helps Clarkson out with a lot of his ploughing, etc., who is the description of a country bumpkin. He is 20-something years old, runs his own business, but has never been to the big city, except for once on a school trip, but he stayed in the coach because it scared him. Um, And he's hilarious. He's absolutely the, the heart of the whole series. And then you've got the guy who maintains his walls and does general jobs around the farm who you can't understand a word that he says because his accent is so thick. 
and they add some great comedy, but also some great real character drama in there. I thoroughly, thoroughly enga- like, engage with it, and I thoroughly recommend it. If you've been put off by it because you think, oh, Jeremy Clarkson, just give it a shot. I started watching the first episode on my day off last week, and within 24 hours, I had watched the whole series because I finished watching the first chunk, went to work the next day, came back, finished watching the next ones before 24 hours had passed. Marvellous, marvellous. Clarkson's Farm on Amazon. It's the best thing that Jeremy Clarkson's done in years. My neat thing, and I'm, I'm, I'm slightly tempted to watch it based on that. Talking of James May, though, he did do some fantastic Christmas episodes based around toys, which were amazing. Absolutely loved them. Anyway, on to my neat thing. I was going to talk about a, a movie that we've that you watched and didn't enjoy, which is I Care A Lot. I remember your review for it and you kind of enjoyed it, but it went off the rails for you. I watched it and yeah. thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, but no, my neat thing for this week, again, is Comixology, which I go back to a lot. And, and I've mentioned many times the Comixology sales. Anyway, they had a sale which tapped into kind of my misspent youth, really, which was the 1980s Mike Grell run on The Green Arrow. Mike Grell was one of those writers and artists who wrote very kind of gritty, hard-boiled, almost detective-type stories. He had a great series called uh, Sable, uh, based on a character called John Sable. He, he did go into science fiction. He did Warlord, and he used to draw the Legion of Superheroes. But his run on The Green Arrow, which was the big influence for the Arrow series, took the character down a gritty sense of realism where the character interplays with street gangs, uh, prostitution, uh, uh, the CIA, and it's all done in this almost cinematic style that is uh, sort of one would expect from being a hard-boiled uh, uh, movie. There are great reads. The, the series initially started with something called The Longbow Hunters, which was a limited series, which Grell wrote Andrew, but that led into uh, an ongoing series that he wrote alongside artist Ed Hannigan. It's a fantastic read. It was on Comixology, super, super cheap. So I picked up all the collected editions. It really is a time capsule for that period just after Watchmen when comics were were testing their boundaries with familiar characters. So alongside that was The Question, which was another gritty DC book. If you've never had the opportunity to go back and read it, and get to know the Green Arrow character as he should be portrayed, then that's a great starting place, a big influence on the TV series. And for me, it is the definitive run on that character. And that's it for this week. Uh, I couldn't do this show alone. I have to do it with this guy sat opposite me somewhere on the end of the ether. Big round of applause for Mr. Andy Meakin. Clap, 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 clap. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I accept this award. <laughs> <laughs> Thoroughly enjoy bringing this show to you. We hope you enjoy it as much as we do enjoy recording it. It's as simple as that. We'll be back next week. You can catch us on your favorite podcast platform. You can catch us on No Barriers Radio. But before you go, Andy, you can't argue with a confident man. 